I'm gonna close the mail app on the iMac as well. How we don't get messages. Luke 9, 18 to 22. Starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And he answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. Father, be glorified. Be with us. We ask, Lord God, that you would... Plant firmly your word in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Help me not to be focused on men and women, but to be focused on you, our glorious God and Savior, who is alive and well. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a little buzzing happening. I don't know what's going on. You can check, see which channels it is. So... Another question that we've been asking throughout our series in Luke's Gospel. How does one come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? We're a Bible Fellowship Church, and so Article 12 states, Salvation is offered in the Gospel to all men and is received by grace through faith and the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit apart from works or human merit. Salvation centers in a person. Jesus Christ, and receiving him includes the remission of sins on the grounds of his shed blood, the imputation of his perfect righteousness, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the impartation of eternal life. So salvation centers on a person, and saving faith cannot happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Amen? So who reveals to those who need to believe that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected? How did you come to this faith? Now, this means that if you believe here today, God opened your eyes and your ears to see. As a result, your heart is then changed and your life has been made new. Who did that for you? Did you do that for yourself? Or was that done for you? How did you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, first... You didn't come to it. It came to you. Second, once saving faith has come, you are now being kept, and Christ is interceding for you. You're not keeping yourself. I done lost myself a long time ago. Amen. Left to myself, I would have done lost. I, I forget where I leave my keys. My phone. Have you ever panic when you lose your cell phone? It's like somebody died. You know what I mean? Like, where's my phone? I can't live this day without my phone. We lose things. That's our nature. We forget things. But we have one who never forgets. Jesus prays for you and the spirit groans with words too deep for understanding for you. 
He saved you by grace and he will keep you by grace. The truth of Jesus as the Christ is the most important truth that can be known, saints. And by knowing it, I'm talking about not an assent to the information of truth, but saving knowledge of it. See, I don't just know Jesus. I know Jesus as Savior. He rescued me. He took me out of my sin. He took me out of my mess. He rescued me. That's what it means to be Savior. So it's not just this, yeah, I know who he is. I know what he has done. Do you know what he has done? That's the question. And maybe your inability to be thankful and to live obediently comes from the fact that you haven't been awestruck by the fact that you've been saved from your sins. Maybe that's your problem. Oh, yeah, I go to church. Church don't rescue nobody. I give tithes every time I come to church. Thank you, but that don't save you. Oh, man, I love the worship. Worship don't save nobody. He saved you. He rescued you. Do you love him? Do you know him as that? See, we've talked constantly of the miracles Jesus performed. Those miracles did not save anyone. Instead, the Savior is God himself. And Peter comes to this knowledge here in our text. So our outline for today, three points for you, for you note takers. Number one, the interchange. The interchange, verses 18 to 20. The inference, point number two, the inference... Verse 20, okay, I can slow down for y'all. The interchange, verse 18, and actually verse 20a, first half. The inference, point number two, verse 20b, and then 21. Point number three, the inevitable. The inevitable, verse 22. The inevitable. Point number one, the interchange. There were already two situations where Jesus had gone to pray where he wanted to pray alone. First, in Luke 5, where Jesus healed a leper. Do you have your Bibles here today? Yes. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. By the way, that buzz that's still happening could be because the, the lapel is too high on the game. Turn that down and put the channel up. Luke 5, 12 to 16. It says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no cleansing. The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Great crowds came, but he withdrew himself to a desolate place, a desert place, and pray. Second, in Luke 6, let's turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 12. It's the next chapter, starting in verse 6 of Luke 6. 
On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew that their thoughts and he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. All night. What was it that when Jesus performed miracles, he needed to go by himself and pray? That's a pattern we're seeing, right? Well, just from these two situations, we see similarities. A miracle was performed and people were involved. Miracles performed by Jesus revealed him to be the Messiah. That's the whole reason. And the people involved either spread the news about what he had done or they opposed him. Anybody been opposed here? Jesus had just performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 people, and as with other situations, Jesus would then want to go and pray. Furthermore, the pattern we see is that he would withdraw to desolate places to do it. He didn't go to a prayer meeting. I'm not saying they're bad. We have them here. He went by himself where there was no one to see him pray. Because him and the father's time was important. And this is convicting. As we covered last week, we saw that when Jesus wanted to retreat, the crowds followed him. Yet in Luke 9, 11, he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. So here we see that Jesus prioritized prayer, even with the busyness of ministry. Ministry could be busy. Church could be busy. Busy sometimes is not good. Busy could mean that you're alive. Praise God. If you're a busy church, it means things are happening. Amen. Better than being a dead church. I've seen dead church. I don't like it. You go in, you're more thirsty going in. There's no life. But the opposite could happen, too. Just because you're a busy church doesn't mean you're alive. What determines life in the church? Prayer with God. Time with God. Devotion to God. Preaching that's exciting, that's tickling your ear, doesn't mean that that preacher is from the Lord. The better question is, does that preacher, has that preacher encountered God? Have you encountered God? That makes a church. So here we see that Jesus prioritized his prayer life over the busyness of ministry. Jesus was praying alone because he needed time with his father. The pattern has been that Jesus prayed at all the critical events of his life. In the Gospel of Luke specifically, prayers are recorded unique to this gospel. The prayer at his baptism in Luke chapter 3. Jesus prayed in the morning, Luke chapter 4. The prayer all night before choosing the 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6. 
prayer along with the disciples before Peter confesses him as the Messiah in Luke chapter 9 in our text. His prayer on the Mount of Transfiguration during which his appearance was changed. His prayer for Peter before his denial. Luke chapter 22. On the cross, Jesus prayed then for the forgiveness of his enemies. Luke 23. And then Jesus prayed his final prayer by committing his spirit to the Father. Luke records prayers unique to his gospel. He prioritized prayer in the most critical times of his life after much ministry had taken place and after much beef was taking place as well. When people wanted to kill him, when people wanted to do him wrong, he went to a desolate place to pray. Man, that's a lesson. I want to defend me. I want to tell people about, you know, who, you don't know who you're messing with. You don't know me. No, you, you probably don't know God. So you need to go to the desert and pray. Because your self-defense or defending yourself takes a back seat to your need for time with the Lord. We need it. Jesus prioritized prayer in the most critical times of his life and after much ministry had taken place. However, he did it not to show that he was a man of prayer. He did it because it was necessary. Even for God the Son, prayer was necessary. You can say ouch, too. How does your prayer life look like? Ah. Pastor Lowe's, how does your prayer life look like? Uh, I did pray in the morning today. You know, I can go through a whole list of, yeah, you know, I'll be, I'll be you know. But you ask my wife sometimes, she'd be like, nah, he didn't pray with me for the past couple days. I'm glad she sits in the front so y'all can't see her face sometimes. <laughs> Straight up. I mean, it's true, but... Just because it's true doesn't mean Pastor Los is living it out truly sometimes. I'm there right with you. I need a good prayer life as well. We all need help. So this word is not just for you. It's for the preacher too. I need sanctified probably more than some of y'all too. For God the Son, prayer was necessary. Prayer in our text preceded what was about to happen. Keep that in mind as we move forward, that what we're about to get into, prayer preceded that. Being alone here did not mean that Jesus was isolated, but that he was not among the crowds. He was praying alone, meaning away from the thousands that were there, but he was praying with his disciples there. After praying to the Father, Jesus begins the interchange with his disciples and when I say interchange, I mean an exchange of ideas and information. Jesus begins with the question after praying. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do the crowd say that I am? In our text, Jesus talks about the crowds that has seen and received from the multiplication of the five loaves and the two fish. And the crowds and the disciples saw the miracle. So what would they say after witnessing this? Verse 19 of our text, they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say that one of the prophets of old has risen. So here the disciples repeat what Herod, remember what Herod said? 
and others said about Jesus, we see three things they heard concerning what the crowds thought of Christ. Number one, John the Baptist. And he believed John to be a true prophet of God. That was his rep. That was what people believed him to be. Second, Elijah. Others said Elijah because of the powerful work Elijah did. He had a powerful ministry calling down fire from heaven, which he did more than once, by the way. So if you read further, Elijah actually does that more than once. And then others said that one of the prophets of old had have risen. So saying that Jesus was one of the prophets was due to the authority and power he spoke with. And not only Jesus, but also his disciples when they were sent to proclaim the gospel, heal and cast out demons. All this proved even more the power Jesus had. Now, as noted before, all these great examples actually fall short of who Jesus is. To say he is Elijah or he is John the Baptist or he is one of the prophets is not doing justice to who Jesus is. They should be the ones we point to and they should be like God, not Jesus should be like them. So as noted before, all these examples fall short. In this interchange, a question was posed about what the crowds thought, which proves that they did not know who he was. They didn't know whom Jesus was even after experiencing all these miracles. The pattern in the Bible is that miracles are not what bring someone to saving knowledge of who Jesus is. It, they don't. You can be a miracle chaser and not know who Jesus is. Miracles don't save anyone. God does. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Let's turn there. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Now, let's get to this serious text. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Now, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, judgment day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Miracles don't save anyone. The experience doesn't confirm them. The better question is, do you know him? And if you know him, how can you be a practitioner of lawlessness? How can you be practicing sin and doing all this and that, immersing yourself in it, and saying that he's Lord of your life? Today, many people in a visible church have chased gifts and miracles who do not know who Jesus is. Many people actually, in our camp, in the Reformed camp, I know people that chase expository preaching. Maybe chasing sound doctrine and not know Jesus. They love teaching. They love, they're in awe of a good presentation, good oration, or good speaking, and not know Jesus. Oh, man, Christ alone goes to the Bible. I love expository preaching, but yet you go home and live like a devil. That could happen, y'all. 
I've seen it happen. So going after the right things could be wrong because you're not going after someone. God wants to be glorified and worship, not the things about him. I always tell people you could worship, worship more than the God you're supposed to worship. That's the problem with contemporary worship music. They're all about the experience. They want to make you feel good. And I tell you, one time I heard a song that actually was whack, and I felt good. It made me feel good. But then I listened to the concert, and I'm like, dang, I can't rock with that anymore, man. It's, it's misrepresenting who Christ is. But man, it felt good. It's the truth. Everyone should pause and think about the question Jesus asked his disciples at the beginning of verse 20 of our text. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question in our text. Why would this be the most important question ever? The disciples were not only witnesses to the miraculous provision of Jesus, they performed the very miracles themselves on behalf of Jesus. They felt with their hands the sick being healed, demons being cast out with their hands. They felt the bread and the fish multiplied. They saw these things with their own eyes. Who did they think Jesus was? Based on this question, saints, a conclusion was reached, but not because they had witnessed miracles with their own eyes and hands. Instead, this inference, this conclusion came from God the Father. The inference, our second point in verse 20b and 21. The inference, second point. By inference, I mean concluding on the basis not of human reasoning or natural revelation but of divine revelation. I'm not talking about like seeing creation and seeing things happen and you're like, you conclude there is a God. Anybody could do that. What Peter is experiencing here is more specific revelation. It's something about God that's more specific to who, who he is. So there were two questions asked here by Jesus, two questions. Why do the crowd, who do the crowd say that I am? And two, who do you say that I am? In the second question, notice that Jesus asked them, it was to the disciples, but notice only Peter replied. Yeah. Only Peter replied. So how does Peter or anyone come to this revelation of Jesus? Well, this revelation comes from God. Yeah. Matthew 16, we have insight as to how someone comes to this revelation. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16 together, verses 13 through 17. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he, had, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice that Jesus tells Peter the cause of what was revealed to him. Peter's conclusion about Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, did not come from flesh and blood. This did not come from man or natural revelation. Jesus said this knowledge comes from the father. This highlights what we have already learned from the previous miracles Jesus performed. And the miracles he performed, he revealed that he was a provider, which he is. However, the miracles were not enough or they were not the cause to what Peter concluded in our text. The cause was the father in heaven. And it was the father's will, actually, to hide this truth from others. You see, so Peter came to this conclusion because the father opened up his eyes and his heart and said, you're going to see who Jesus is. But why didn't God the father do that for others? This is what we call divine sovereignty. Matthew 11, verse 25 through 26. I'm going to bother some of y'all here today. Matthew 11, 25 through 26. Starting in verse 25 of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Peter's answer spoke of Jesus as the Christ of God. Specific to Peter. Now, remember, Jesus told this to his disciples, but there was one who came to this conclusion. Why only one amongst the other disciples that were there? God decided to show it to Peter. Why not the others? Who is God that he would do something like this? The question is in Romans now, who are you? Oh, man, to answer back to God. God does what he pleases. Can God be God? You know, can he? Can he be God? Yeah. He might bother some of y'all if he's shown and revealing himself. And that's why preachers avoid texts like this. They don't want to deal with a sovereign God who sovereignly elects and sovereignly chooses his people. He has a right to do that. The question is, are you comfortable with that? Because we're going to get into some more passages that are going to trouble you who think that God is knocking at the door of your heart. He's a gentleman and he's just waiting for you. And you can tell him, no, you can do whatever you want. Uh, Read the book of Jonah. Um, Study Moses. um, And the list goes on. When God desires to rescue you, he's not asking you for permission. You're in a house burning. And he's that fireman coming in and you want to commit suicide in the fire in that house burning. And you know what God does? He loves you enough to rescue out of that, whether you like it or not. Because he loves you and he knows better than you. Sorry, if you don't come back to the church, we'll still love you. You can email the church, ChristAlonefellowship.com, if you have any complaints about that. 
I was just reading my Bible and seeing that a sovereign God decided to reveal himself to those he loves. He revealed himself as Christ of God in our text to Peter. Christ in the New Testament is the designation term to the Old Testament, meaning Messiah or anointed one. The Christ here means that Jesus is the only true and faithful Christ. And so in Greek, the propositional article the makes the title more specific and designates it to the title Messiah in the Old Testament. So Peter said, you are not just Christ, you are the Christ. Meaning, you are the anointed one, the Messiah promised. This is the point of all Jesus did. This is the climax of all Jesus was doing. The saving revelation of who Jesus is proved someone to be a genuine believer. And so, the conclusion, the answer was based not on human reasoning or natural revelation, but on divine revelation. It came from the Father. How did Paul come to the same conclusion? Remember Galatians, where the Judaizers try to deceive churches into believing you had to be circumcised to be saved? How did Paul come to saving faith? He tells us in Galatians 1, how it was God who revealed himself to him. Remember when uh, Paul was going to persecute the church, what did Jesus do? He stopped them on his way and said, why do you persecute me? Isn't that how Paul came to faith? If Jesus didn't show up, what would have Paul done? Continue to persecute the church. So Jesus revealed himself, and then he came to faith. That's how this works. Paul wanted churches in Galatia to know that it was by divine revelation that he was called. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's you prior to faith. Romans 8.6-8, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's in the Bible. Those who are in the flesh are those without faith, Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, And that he rewards those who seek him. We cannot come to believe on our own. Peter could not have come to this saving truth on his own. It was revealed to him. Peter, who had seen with his very eyes and hands the miracles Jesus did, the miracles in themselves were not enough to show him what he he saw in our text. This is very, very, very important. Have we genuinely come to faith? In our series through the book of Philippians, the drawing near question was this. Guys, remember? The Bible insists there is a considerable difference between the behavior of believers and that of, quote, make believers. How can we truly be saved? Now, I want to camp in 1 John 4 for a little bit. Turn there with me at the end of your Bibles, 1 John 4. 
to find out how do we know we're saved? How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know? You ever ask that question? Maybe in your times of struggle, you've asked that question. Let me, let me help y'all, uh, some of y'all real quick. Like, you can easily hear messages that really preach the gospel and preach through the scriptures, but sometimes it feels like when you leave church, you don't feel saved anymore. Because you see what the Bible says. You should be living right. You should be resisting sin. You should not be a practitioner of sin. But those of y'all know who live long enough, I'm 47 years old, turning 48 this year. I'm 48 years old. I got to say, when I was 15, I've had seasons of struggle. I had seasons of it, not days. I'm talking about seasons to the point where I had to move to another town season. Because I preached the gospel through Christian hip hop for years. Then I found myself compromising in my faith and I felt so much shame for my profession of faith in public that I had to go to another town to try to do me. Because I felt the shame. And then I remember, <laughs> for some reason, I decided to move in with the drug dealer. That's a whole other story. That was stupid. I lived in a drug dealer's house and I remember in the small room that I was in, trying to sin, trying to do me, I was in the corner, fetal position and all, full of conviction, telling the Lord, please just let me go. I do not want to serve you anymore. I'm done. I want my sin more than you. And I remember the pastor just said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I was just like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> and then I got up, repented, went back to church, got my faith and my walk right. And then God was, you know, was working through me and using me again, brought me back, restored me, brought me back to community. And then the rest is history. Been there? So this is not to say that you might be in that same season today where you're struggling. I hope that you come to that place in the corner realizing you can't run from God and that you hear the very words of Scripture. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So with that said, 1 John 4, 7 through 9, this is not to condemn, this is to encourage. Beloved, in verse uh, 7 of 1 John 4, Beloved, let us uh, love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So the point here. Loving one another because God has shown himself to be love is evidence of genuine faith. A love for one another, a love for God's people shows that you have come to faith. What would withholding that love from one another reveal? Maybe it reveals that you do not know God. If you say you're a lover of God, how can you say that you love him, but you don't love his people. 
1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you hate fellowship, if you withhold love from fellowship, how can you say you love God? Now remember, we're talking about evidence of genuine faith, which the disciples came to as Jesus revealed it to them and to more specifically to Peter. Now, 1 John 4, 13 through 15, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we know we are of faith because the Holy Spirit has been given to us, which compels our confession that Jesus is the Son of God. What do you love talking about here? What are your words? What are your conversations? Yeah. Are they filled with the Spirit? Are they filled with the Word? Or are y'all just talking about the Eagles game today? Oh, I didn't get a lot of amens and ouches on that. I'm messing with some of y'all. No, we're watching the game. It's all good. As we used to say, do you fiend to chop the word of God? Is the word of God just your everyday conversation? Is it something that you dwell on? And are you enriched by conversations about God's word? If the spirit dwells in you, then it follows that your spirit will bear witness to Talking about the things of God. Then lastly, in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 3, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We know we're of faith because we obey his commandments. And we know because they're not burdensome to us. You don't have to pull my teeth to do what God calls me to do. I do it because the spirit of the living God dwells within me. Anyone can say that Jesus is the Christ and that he is of God. However, what about loving one another? Because God has shown himself to be loved to you. What about the Holy Spirit who's been given to you? Has it compelled your confession? What about obedience to his commandments? Are they burdensome? Just saying the right things about God is not enough. This is different from what Peter is experiencing in our text. Jesus is revealing what has been known about him from the beginning of time, that he is the Christ of God. This is what it means to be Christian saints. John Piper made an excellent observation when talking about this, where he said, when Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches and the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience with God. I want to share with y'all what God has been doing. What God was leaning on me to do last week, this year. 
I remember Paul Washington, his illustration about the truck. How can I go to you and say, yo, I've experienced God. I've, I love Jesus, but then nothing in my life shows it. He talked about some guy who got hit by a truck, a Mack truck, 80 miles per hour. And he goes to the church and says, you know, actually, he, he, he says he got hit. He goes to the church and tells the church, hey, I just got hit by an 80 mile per hour truck. Now, you would look at him and be like, you're still walking. You're not at the hospital. You're lying. Right. You ain't got hit by nothing. It was probably a little truck, a little kid's truck, and you're complaining, maybe. No, you're not showing evidence of being hit. God's much bigger than a truck. If you say you got hit by the Lord and you got rocked by the Lord, let me see it. Stop talking about it. Let me see it with your life. Are his commandments burdensome? Are you loving God's people? Are you loving his word? What are you saying? What are you doing? Knowing in the Bible has always been acquainted with intimacy. This is what Peter is experiencing here. He's not just saying, yo, I got hit and I'm chill. After the resurrection, he got hit. And then he got crucified upside down for it. Because he felt like he couldn't be worthy of being crucified like his Lord. I got off topic here. My bad. The hour of his suffering was coming, but it would not be then. The mission of Jesus was to die, saints. Right from the beginning in, first, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist saying this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the plan from the beginning. It was for Jesus to die, which is inevitable. The last point, the inevitable in verse 22 in closing. Verse 22, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised. This would not have been new for the disciples to hear. Talking about Jesus being the son of man, he used it four times before a passage and actually 20 times in the gospel of Luke, where it talks about the time of his arrest and death and also the son of man titles used throughout the gospels. It is used 29 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark's gospel, and 25 times in Luke. And so the gospels are saturated with this title. What does this mean, son of man? It's a reference that reflects his messianic ministry of suffering, enthronement, authority, and, and, and that appears in Daniel's vision of the son of man. Also, it speaks of his humanity. There are about four general uses which Jesus uses Son of Man in the Gospels, and I just laid them out for you. Jesus is saying that as the one who was promised, he must suffer many things. What many things will he suffer? Number one, he'll suffer at the hands of elders. Elders were likely older men in the community involved in important religious and social decisions. It's interesting that the Old Testament Use would have used it to mean those who lead and direct on governing councils for cities and towns. This is who elders were. They were actually involved with the Sanhedrin, chief priests, and so the community leaders who were involved in important religious and social decisions 
would reject and kill Jesus. Then you have the chief priests who were worship leaders in Jerusalem. They would also crucify and reject Jesus. Three, the scribes who copied the text with their bare hands also would reject Jesus. So the leaders of the religious, social, and ceremonial worship over the people rejected and killed Jesus, who is God. That would be the religious part. He's king, the social part, and also the mediator, the ceremonial part. So the people in charge of these things would kill the very person that they were about. Can you imagine leading worship, God's people, and hating Christ? Can you imagine that? That hap- It's happening today. There's people leading worship that have no communion with God. There's people making important decisions for the church, no communion with God. There's people about the social matters of our communities with no communion with God. That's what happened here. These people wanted to reject and kill the Christ that they were given. The most important thing is genuine belief in Jesus, and that's what Peter is experiencing. Can we make that same mistake of being about, not about the Lord, but about everything else? Yes, we can even be religious and have no communion with God. You could read your Bible and have no communion with God. You can even copy the word of God as a scribe and not have any communion with God. What matters at the end of the day? What matters is genuine faith in Christ. I like what Charles Spurgeon said here. He said, Go measure the heavens with your span. Go weigh the mountains in the scales. Go take the ocean's water and calculate each drop. Go count the sand upon the sea's wide shore. And when you have accomplished all this, then you can tell how much he loves you. He has loved you long. He has loved you well. He will love you forever. Saints, that's what matters. Elders, scribes, chief priests, they couldn't even understand this. Do you? And if you do, if you do understand this, know that in this season of your life where sin is a problem, your sin is no greater than the Savior. He got you. Persevere. Work through it. Hear the words say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He got you. He's after you. He desires your heart. And sometimes my heart's broken. Sometimes my heart is dusty. It's incomplete, but he's working through it. Peter didn't show that he should have been shown this because he was qualified. Jesus, what what did he do before he revealed it to him? Remember, he prayed. And he prayed for Peter. And Peter received revelation from the Father. He loves us so much that he does not leave at us, leave us in in our rejection. He, He doesn't leave us in our sin. This is where the world leaves him, right there. Not as Savior, not as Lord. 
However, he loves beyond our condition. He saves us and rescues us. And he gave us the example with him being raised on the third day. What does the scripture say? We also will follow in like. We will be raised with him. Amen. 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 So be encouraged, saint. Be encouraged. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ here today, surrender. Ask the Lord. Lord, I, I need you. I need you today. That call of needing him comes from him. Ask him for it, and he will save you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for today's service. We thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing. Be with us today. We ask, Lord God, that as we partake of communion, we would remember the revelation given to Peter that also has been given to us, that's been given to Paul, that's been given to John, that's been given to Moses, Elijah, and the prophets, and everyone else of the saving truth and knowledge of who you are. God, would you help us be with us today and help my brothers and sisters who are wounded in sin. God, deliver them. Show them the freedom that is in you through obedience. Obeying your commandments are not burdensome. Be with us today. We 